Thank you, Brother Tony. It is a great honor to be with you tonight. I've never been here before, but I've heard of you, of your, this congregation, of your faith, and I've appreciated your diligence and your example for many, many years, and I'm grateful for that. And uh, when you go and you speak at different places, you never know how you're going to be introduced. So I thank you for that good introduction. I'm not ashamed of either of those things, being a fan of the greatest football team of all time, <clears throat> or of uh, uh, in being involved in, in technology and helping ministers to learn how to use technology. Uh, but when you, when you speak a lot, you're introduced in different places. I was speaking in Middle Tennessee three or four years ago on a on a, on a Wednesday evening, I arrived early like I like to arrive, and there were several men in the foyer, just like this evening when I walked in, everyone was so very kind when they spoke to me and all, but I walked in and, and nobody spoke to me at that church. It was very unusual. Nobody spoke to me. My wife was with me. I had my Bible. I had a suit on. It was obvious I was going to be speaking. No one spoke. I wandered around, read every mission report they had up. Nobody came up and spoke or anything. And finally, this little short man walked up to me and said, Are you the speaker tonight? And I, I was not really sure at that point. And I said, I think so. And he said, Well, I'm introducing you. He didn't tell me his name or anything. He got up to introduce me. That asked me to send a bow ahead of time. He, he looked down at the bow. He looked at the audience. He looked down at the bow again. He looked back up at the audience. He looked down a third time and he said, I'm supposed to introduce the speaker tonight. He looked down at it again and he looked back up and he said, but you, know, you folks know I don't like doing this. Brother Jerkins, come speak to us. Well, it's kind of go by Jenkins typically, but that was all right. A few years ago, I was preaching up in Canton, Ohio, and it was a Tuesday evening. If you've ever been to Canton, Ohio, there's only one thing to do in Canton, Ohio. That's to go to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So I went, and that old myth that they will not start the services without the preacher is not true because I got in a traffic jam coming back, and I could not get there. I was late arriving when I arrived at the market. Avenue congregation there in Canton. I slid in. There was only one seat I saw available. It was beside a, an elderly lady, a little elderly lady. I sat beside her, and and uh, and uh, it was great. You know, a Tuesday evening in a full house, and it was wonderful. And after the service, people were walking out and being very polite. And and this lady, I kept noticing standing over the side. And finally, she came over after about everyone had left and spoke to me and said, "I've been a widow for 30 years." She said, for 30 years, I have had to sit by myself at services. And she said, tonight the preacher sat beside me. <laughs> I didn't have the heart to tell her. It was kind of accidental. <laughs> but uh, I began the practice of trying to find someone at every time that I preach that's sitting by themselves. And I was able tonight to find someone sitting by themselves that are gracious enough to allow me to sit beside them. A couple of years ago, in fact, I believe it was last summer, I was preaching in Benton, Kentucky, and Jay Lockhart is a preacher there. Some of you know Brother Lockhart. Brother Lockhart is a, a wonderful gospel preacher. He's introduced me, and Tony, he went on and on and on. The introduction got really lengthy and, and rather boring to me, but, uh, you know, just it was really nice, though. Brother Lockhart's a master of the words. He was so very gracious. I'd looked around before the service began and couldn't find anyone there sitting by themselves. The best I could do were three ladies sitting over to what would be my left tonight. They were sitting together, and so I slid in, all of them on up in years. I said, can I sit with you? And they said, yes. And I, I said, thank you. And Brother Lockhart got up, and as I said, was introducing. He was going on and on and on, and, and, and it just went on and on. And finally, the lady on the third from furthest from me, all the way on the end, leaned forward and looked at me, and with a voice 
loud enough that I'm sure everyone in the auditorium heard her said, Well, after all that, you better be good. If you'll take your Bibles tonight, we're going to spend the primary amount of our time not in Philippians chapter 4. That tells us that imperative from Paul in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. That great imperative. We're going to take the commentary that that is written from, from Matthew chapter 6. So if you'll take your Bibles and open Matthew 6, we'll spend the majority of our time there. You know, the Bible says in Romans that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not only are we guilty of individual sins, of one-time sins, sometimes we stumble, but sometimes we're guilty of sins that we carry with us. We're guilty of those besetting sins like Hebrews chapter 12 and chapter 11 might speak of. But we are guilty of three kinds. There are three kinds of rebellion against God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22 that all creation is groaning under the weight of sin, waiting to be redeemed. There are three kinds of rebellion that go on in our life. There is, of course, that word that you're familiar with, that, that word sin. It's the word we use more often than any other word when we talk about transgressions and violating God's rules. It is sin. It simply means, as you probably know, to miss the mark. If we were to put a target up here and to give you a bow and arrow and you were to take a bow and arrow and you were to shoot an arrow toward the target and not hit it, that would be sin. You fell short, you missed the mark, you didn't hit the target. That is sin. Those things happen in our life on a regular basis. We're guilty of sins, of falling short. You didn't live up to what God wanted you to be. I find very often it's hard enough for me to live up to what I want to be, much less what God wants me to be. The word sin, as we said, means to miss the mark. But there's a second word that is not used as often, but most of you are familiar with it. I've already used it once this evening. It is the word transgression. The word transgression. It is kind of the opposite of the word sin. When we transgress, we go too far. It means to go past the boundary. It is an intentional, deliberate disobedience. Sin can be, I just didn't measure up. I didn't reach what I was reaching for. Transgression is when you knew it and you went beyond it. And the third word, when we talk about rebellion in the Word of God, is the word iniquity. The word iniquity. That's the one that's used very rarely in the English language outside of church buildings. We don't hear it, hear it very often. Iniquity is a slap in the face of God. It is when you intentionally hurt someone, when you do intent to damage someone. Iniquity is what we would refer to as Hitler killing, with the Nazis killing six million Jewish people. That is iniquity. It is despicable. It is that which slaps God in the face. Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables, and in these three parables, he lists the three different kinds of things that we face in our life. In Psalm chapter 32, David uses all three of these words. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 that we all like sheep have gone astray, and Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4 says that all sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the last two verses, O wretched man that I am, who shall save me from this body of death? And James summarizes in one of the great understatements of all the Bible. We all sin in many things. We all sin in many things. But I know you are a good Sunday night crowd. And I know that you are people who are trying to live for the Lord. More often than not, those of us who are faithful in our attendance at services are not guilty of what we might call blue-collar sins, those sins that would make the front page of every newspaper in America if we committed them, those that would get us, cause us to lose our homes and our families, those that would cause us to lose our jobs and our reputation. We are much more often guilty of what we might call white-collar sins. 
And worry falls into that category. So how do I get rid of worry? Because worry is a sin. But if we are all honest tonight, remember Paul said in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am. And I had an old preacher one time tell me, Paul was talking about his life before he was a Christian. But that's not right. I've checked it in the original. It is, I am. It's in the present tense. Paul says, I'm still struggling with sin. Earlier in the chapter, he said, the good that I don't want, the good that I want to do, I don't do. It's the evil that I don't want to do, that I do. Paul was struggling still with sin in his life. And if you're an honest person tonight, you would admit the same. There are still areas in your life where you sin. And for many of us, worry falls right into this category. Why is it that we expect the worst? This week, I got a letter in the mail, and on the outside of the letter, there were three letters that struck terror in my heart. They were I, R, and you know the last one, don't you? S. Opened it up, it was just a routine letter, nothing about it at all, but my heart beat very rapidly for a few minutes. How is it that we break the habit of expecting the worst, of being pessimistic? Why is it that when we're out on the freeway and we, we pass by a state trooper on the side of the road, it doesn't matter if we're going 30 miles an hour, we instinctively slow down a little bit more? Why is it that we find ourselves thinking always that the worst is going to happen? How is it that when we hear about an automobile wreck, we wonder if maybe it was a friend of ours that was involved in it? The word worry is an old English word that literally means to choke or to strangle. It's a very appropriate word, isn't it? Because when we worry, we choke or strangle the life out of ourselves. It's like we get a knot in our throat. The Greek for the word worry means to divide. And when James talked about it, he talked about a double-minded man being unstable in all his ways. Paul's just very frank about it. Don't worry. Be anxious for nothing. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount kicks us off tonight as he teaches us how to deal with the worry problem in our life. I want to begin tonight, if you have an outline that was handed to you, you can fill it out. If not, these are some things you might want to jot down. I want to look tonight as we begin at five reasons not to worry. Five reasons not to worry. The key verse here is in Matthew chapter 6 where he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. In my opinion, that is one of the hardest commands in all the Bible to obey. We worry. You ever thought about worry in relationship to your family? When you first get married, you kind of worry, don't you? I'm told that children, one of the biggest fears that children in our culture today have is that their parents will divorce. We're taught to worry early. And then we get married. Can we make it? Can we stay together? Will we be able to afford the things that we want? We worry about it. And then kids come along. We wonder, am I going to be able to take care of the kids? And then we think that maybe when our kids grow up that we're not going to worry about anymore. I have two children. My older son, Philip, is 28, and my younger son, Andrew, is 25. Both of them are married. I have a grandchild and another on the way. And I thought when my kids left home to go to college, I could probably start, stop worrying about them. Not the case, though, is it? It doesn't matter their age. We still have them in our great concerns. Worry is one of the hard commands in all the Bible to, to, for us to obey. Jesus said there are five reasons. Let's start in Matthew chapter 6, and I want to begin reading in Matthew 6 and begin at verse 25. Again, if you've not turned there, you can do that now. Matthew 6, beginning at verse 25. Therefore, Jesus said, I say to you, 
Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not the life more than food and the body more than clothing? God commands us not to worry. And I want you to realize something tonight, something I believe will be an encouragement to you. And that is that God never gives us a command that we cannot obey. So how do we obey this command? First of all, he says that worry is unreasonable. Worry is unreasonable. Look at the text. He said, is not, the li- is not life more than food? Is not the body more, the old King James said, than raiment? The new King James says, than clothes? He's saying it doesn't make sense. Worry is irrational. There's more to life than food and clothes. I don't care what the paparazzi want to do by taking pictures of people and posting what they're wearing as the latest fad or the latest trend. It doesn't matter if you're eating gourmet food and have designer clothes. If your life is messed up, it does, what does it matter? He's saying if you're going to worry, find something worth worrying about. We worry about the silliest of things. Jesus pegs us very appropriately. We worry about food. We worry about clothes. We worry about our house. We worry about the simplest of things. And Jesus says, I can take care, the Father can take care of all those problems. Somebody comes along and they criticize you and you start getting a little anxious about it. And you're worried. And you think about it and pretty soon you begin to develop in your mind the idea that everyone is against you. And soon the whole world is against you. Why? Because when you worry, you rehearse it in your mind. You don't do anything about it. You just rehearse it. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It is unreasonable. There's no reasoning with worry. Second, Jesus would say that worry is unnatural. That it's unnatural. Look at what he says. He says, look at the birds up in the air. He said, they don't worry. He said, they, 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 they don't uh, sow. They don't reap. They don't, uh, they don't put away in barns. You don't see a, a bird farmer out there. They're not involved in that business. And he says, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then look at the question. Are you not of greater value? Are you not more valuable than they are? Jesus gives a little bird-watching example. I imagine a crowd this size. There are some of you who are bird watchers. I'm not much of a bird watcher. But Jesus gives a bird-watching example. He says... He says, look at the birds. You don't see them worrying. I've noticed something a little bit about birds, though. If there's anybody on God's welfare rolls, it's the bird. They They don't do a whole lot. They just kind of fly around, flutter, sing, build a nest about once a year. God takes care of them. He says, if God takes care of the birds, won't He take care of you? And after he finishes a bird lesson, he gives a botany lesson. In verse 28, he says, why do you worry about your clothes? Look at the lilies of the field. He said, they don't labor, they don't spin. You don't see a, you don't see a, a, a flower working in the garment industry. He said, but I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory, all his splendor, one translation says, was not arrayed or dressed like one of these. Have you ever looked at a flower very closely, the intricacies of it? And then he says that again. If God takes care of the, fly, of the flower... Don't you think He's going to take care of you? If God takes care of the grass in the field, which today is and tomorrow is gone, don't you think He's going to take care of you? Worry is not only unreasonable, it is unnatural. There's only one thing in all of creation that worries. 
as people. Now, I have heard advertised of late on a Nashville radio station that I'm seriously considering discontinuing listening to a person who calls themselves a pet psychologist. I want to get into that business. Because who knows whether they're telling you the truth or not. You know, we, we have this idea. The only thing that worries is, is man. The only thing in God's creation that doesn't trace, trust God are people. Psalm 145 verse 16 teaches that God satisfies the desires of everything that He made. Of every living creature. Worry is unnatural. You were not born to worry. Now again, here's some good news for you. Since you were not born that way, that means you learned it. And since you learned it, that means you can unlearn it. It can be unlearned. You can learn not to worry. You ever heard anybody say, I'm just worried sick about this? It's not so much what you eat that counts. It's what eats you. Seven and a half billion headaches, I'm told, are reported every day in America. We consume 15 pounds of aspirin every day in America. Proverbs 12 says an anxious heart weighs down a man's countenance. Proverbs 14 says a heart at peace gives life to the body. Notice, your heavenly Father, your Father, He will feed them. It's unnatural. If He'll take care of them, you ought to trust He'll take care of you. Third, Worry is unhelpful. It is unhelpful. Look at what he says here in verse 27. Which of you, by taking thought, worrying, he's still talking about the same idea, which of you, by worrying, can add a cubit, add even a cubit to his height? Which of you, by worrying, can, can add an hour of life to your life? It doesn't work. It's unhelpful. I'll tell you this. Worry can make your life shorter. It can't make it longer. But it can do the opposite. It can shorten it. Worry never makes you an inch closer to your goal. Somebody said that worry is like a rocking chair. A lot of activity, but you don't make any progress. Just back and forth. Worry is unhelpful. So why worry? The only thing that worry changes is you. It gives you wrinkles. At least I'm told it does. It makes you miserable. It's stewing without doing, one guy said. It is unhelpful. Number four, worry is unnecessary. It is unnecessary. In verse 30 he says, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? He's saying there's no need to worry, because God has promised to take care of you, if you will just trust him. Now, when I was growing up, when I was young, I didn't worry much about where our next meal was coming from. And if I saw something and I wanted it, I would ask my dad, never considering that he may or may not, on a preacher's salary of four kids, be able to, to, to afford it. I never worried once about where my dad got his money. I guess probably most of you are the same way. You, you may have known your dad went into work, but you probably didn't know where he got the money from. In fact, I never, it never entered my mind. 
Can you know? I, I never said, uh, Dad, I'm a little tight this month. Can I can I have a loan? I just told him what I needed. It was like he had an unlimited abundance. It's like his supply could not run out. Now look back at our text. Look what the Bible says. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows what you need. And the old King James uses a, a word that you won't use in your everyday talk. It's the word needeth. It's an interesting word. And I'm told by those who have studied it deeply that any time you see the ETH on end of a word, it denotes a continual, a continual action. That means God knows what you need today. He knows what you'll need tomorrow. And He knows what you will need every day after that. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. That's a great verse, isn't it? Now here's the reason it's a great verse. Because God has all the resources in the world. God's never going to miss a house payment. God's never going to miss a car payment. God's never going to not be able to afford what needs to be afforded. God says, I can meet all of your needs. Now, now notice, it says needs, not greeds. Because that's where we get in trouble. We get greedy. We begin to think we deserve everything that everybody else has. But it says that God will meet your needs, and I love the way it says it, according to His riches. God's never going to open up His bank vault and say, there's just not enough here today. God's not like Greece. He's not going to run out of funds and have to realign his resources in order to go to the bank and borrow some more money. God has all the resources in the worry in the world. Worry comes from mis, from a misunderstanding of what God is like. Did you get that? Worry comes from a misunderstanding of what God is like. You know what God is. He is a father. And when you worry, you're ultimately saying, I don't believe God is a good father. I don't believe God is going to take care of his children. When you worry, you're saying, you know, I've looked at God and I've thought about it, and, and, and I, God's not going to do everything he can to take care of his own. You see, worry comes from misunderstanding of God. A lot of people think, a lot of people misunderstand this. They start doubting God when they get in some sort of trouble or some, some sort of area of their life. Are you aware that God still loves you as a Christian even when you've done wrong? And there may be consequences on this earth to your wrong, to your sin, but it won't change God's love for you or it won't change His provision. A lot of people think, I've trusted God with my soul. I've been baptized with the forgiveness of sins. I've trusted with that. But I can handle these other things. Now listen. You know that God solved the biggest problem you ever had in your life when He solved the problem of your salvation? The Scriptures say in Romans chapter 8 that God loved you enough to take care of your biggest problem. Don't you think that He cares enough about you to take care of the smaller problems in life? It's unnecessary. If God took care of the grass, don't you think He'll take care of you? And so I noticed yesterday, driving to my grandson's first birthday party over in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, that a lot of the grass is dying right now. 
But you know what? Just a few more drops of rain, and it'll come back. All by itself, almost as if. But you know what it is? God's going to take care of it. I read about, I read a story about a little old lady walking down a country road. She had a heavy back, had a heavy pack on her back. She was carrying and struggling with it. And this man pulled over the side of the road in a pickup truck and said, Hey, let me help you out. He picked her up and she got in the car and said, Thank you for the ride. They'd been riding down the road for a while and she still was really tired. About 20 minutes down the road, the guy looked over, over at her and she was still wearing the backpack on her back. And he said, Why don't you take that off and toss it in the back of the truck? And she said, Oh, no. It's enough for you just to carry me. I'll carry my backpack. That story is about as logical as how some people treat God with their needs. God, if you'll just get me to heaven, I'll worry about all the problems down here on earth. You know, you take care of my soul, I'll take care of everything else. Why would we, we won't even think that way? Uh, number five, worry is unchristian. Worry is unchristian. Look at verse 31. So why do you take thought? Why do you worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after, look at it, after, watch it, after all these things do, what's your translation say? The heathen? Maybe in your translation it say the pagans seek? And your heavenly Father knows you need them. That word seek there is interesting. It's that carries with it the idea of running after something, pursuing it. Remember that word. We're going to come back to it in a few minutes. After all these things, do those who do not even know God, those who bow down in front of idols and worship them, those who would spit in the face of God, they're worried about those things. It is unchristian to do this. Those who believe in God don't have a right to worry. Non-believers should worry. They ought to be worried. They're trying to live their life without God's help. Frankly, I'd be worried too. They're going to devil's fire. Frankly, I'd be worried too. But notice, after all these things, do the heathen seek? Do the heathen run? Doesn't that describe our culture today? Everybody's rushing. Everybody's running. Everybody's in a hurry. After getting this new car and getting that car paid for and getting this new house and wearing those new clothes, running after whatever, they run. They're always in a hurry. Why? Because they don't believe that anything else is going to help them out. Worry is unchristian. But I'm, I'm a Christian. And it doesn't all depend on me. We have some Christians that have become more American than our Christian. And they think they pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Don't want any help out of anybody. Well, trust me something already. You've already gotten help. It's from your Heavenly Father. Christians are different. We have a Heavenly Father who wants to and who will provide for us. He says, God knows. I love that little apostrophe at the end there. Your Father knows what you need. He knows what your needs are. Many of your parents you knew when your kids were little what their needs were. You can hear a little baby cry, some of you, especially your moms. You can hear a baby cry from, from uh, all the way on the other side of the house, and you can know what it needs. Oh, it needs changing. Oh, it, 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 needs, it needs milk. Oh, it, 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 uh, it needs some comfort. Oh, it, it's uh, just pretending. Put it on. It'll, it'll stop crying. Uh, you, you know those needs. 
God says, you're my children. When you worry, when you worry, you're acting like an orphan. You're acting like you don't have a God, like you don't have a father. The bottom line is worry is practical atheism. In essence, it says it all depends on me, so I've got to worry to keep it all in order because I've got to take care of it all by myself. He's saying, I don't believe that God will help me out of this mess. When we begin to think it all depends on us, we begin to take things in our hands that are not our business. We begin to assume responsibilities that aren't within our venue. We begin to, to start playing God. That's really what worry is. It's taking on what God said I'll be responsible for. And you taking all on your shoulders. What a poor example Christians are when they worry. God says, I don't want you to worry. I want you to be like me. He never worries. The last verse of the previous chapter, he said, be like your heavenly father. If you're going to be like God, you've got to choose not to doubt God's love. And you've got to stop worrying. But how do I stop worrying? One of the things I love most about the word of God is that it's so practical. And when God commands us to do something, he tells us how to do it. And I see three things in this text that will help us break the worry habit. You might write them down on the rest of your outline. Number one, verse 33. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Now please do not pull Matthew 6.33 out of its context. Jesus has just been talking about worry. And I told you to tuck that little word seek away in your mind. After all these things do the heathen seek. Here it is again. But you seek first. Christians seek first the kingdom of God. You're also running after something. You're also pursuing something. You're pursuing the kingdom of God. You're pursuing His righteousness. So point number one. If you want to stop worrying, you need to put God in first place in every part of your life. That's the starting point. You've got to set your priorities. You've got to decide who's going to be number one in your life. Scripture says that old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. As Christians, they're new. Even the way we look at life is new. That includes our worrying. You stop living for things and you start living for God. Anytime I'm worrying, a little red light ought to go off in my mind that says I'm putting something in first place besides the Lord. Because as long as I'm putting Him in first place, I won't have to do it. As long as I'm seeking Him and His righteousness, that is the starting point. If you want the promises given to God's children, you've got to be one of God's children. Now we're not closing the lesson here, but I want to go ahead and extend the invitation right now. I want you to know right now, then unless God is not in the first place in your life, your life is out of sorts with Him. And it may be tonight that you're not a Christian. And it may be tonight that you need to say, I'm ready to have a Father in Heaven. And tonight, if that's the case, when we sing this song in just a little while, you'll have the opportunity to say, I want to do that this very evening. It's possible you are a Christian, but you're not living like it. You're living like an atheist. You're living like one that doesn't have a Heavenly Father. And you too need to say, God needs to be first place in my life. 
And when we sing that song, if you need people to pray with you, support you, you will have that this very evening. Notice the scripture here, back to Matthew chapter 6. Notice verse 25. He says, therefore, therefore take no thought for your life. He's going to start talking about worry. And he uses this word, therefore. It's old and tried, I know, but old teacher used to say, anytime you see the word therefore, you ought to see what it's there for. And I think that's the case here. Jesus has just finished saying, no man can serve two masters. For he will love the one and hate the other, to cleave the one and despise the other. He's just said that very concept, that very idea. And he was talking about money. Isn't that interesting? I imagine one of the number one things that we worry about in our culture is money. Most of us in this room, some of you might, but most of us in the room don't worry about where our next meal is coming from. Most of us in the room don't really worry about our clothing a whole lot. You might worry about what you're going to wear, but you only worry about it because you've got so much to wear already, don't you? I won't get into that tonight. I'd like to leave here and some of the women still like me a little bit, so I'm not going to talk about how much clothing we have. But we do have a lot of clothing, don't we? If you can go to your closet and have to pick out one item, we don't worry about clothing. We worry about money. And Jesus has been just, talk, just been talking about money. I believe one of the reasons it's so hard for Christians to give is because we don't trust God. We trust our money more than we trust God. Our bills say in God we trust. It might should say in gold we trust because we seem to show more of that than the other. Do we really trust in God with our money? Jesus said it. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in possessions. You can't serve God in mammon, the old King James says. And the number one reason why people don't give is because they're afraid that if they give the Lord, they won't have enough to live on. But hadn't He already proved to you by your very life that you will? All right, we need to move on. Number two, verse 34. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Sufficient to the day is the trouble thereof. Or one translation says, each day has enough trouble on its own. How many of you agree with that verse? Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that a powerful verse? Point number two, just live one day at a time. Live just one day at a time. Now that is so simple that is profound. Live one day at a time. Don't borrow trouble. Don't open your umbrella until it starts raining. There are now two days of every week that you shouldn't worry about. Yesterday and tomorrow. Don't worry about those two days. Don't worry about the future. Because you can't control it. Oh, if I'd just known what Google stock was going to do ten years ago. Oh, if I'd just known what was going to happen with futures in certain areas. You can't know, though. Oh, if I'd just seen the housing bubble and I'd bought a bunch of land before and just held on to it. Man, I'd be in what a, Oh, you cannot know. Somebody said that today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday. Live one day at a time. Why should I live one day at a time? When you worry about tomorrow's problems, you miss today's blessings. When you worry about tomorrow's problems, you miss today's blessings. You're all wound up, all wrapped up, all tied up, but not in Jesus. You're all messed up about everything else that's going to happen in the future, and you miss what's happening right in front of you. 
You're so uptight about worrying about tomorrow's happening or next month's happening or next year's happening or when you retire that you don't enjoy today. You can't control it. He was one of the best elders I ever worked with. His name was Ray Owsley. Ray was an elder. He had two brothers. Both of them were elders in other congregations in the cities they lived in. Her mom and dad had done a tremendous job raising those kids. His sister-in-law and her sister's husband was an elder. They were an awesome family, the Owsley family. Brother Ray was one of my elders. He came to my office one day about 20 years ago. And he said, you got a minute? I said, yeah. Ray had always wanted to retire. He couldn't wait to retire. He didn't take vacations. He hadn't had a sick day in 40 years. He had built up enough time in his company that when he had started working with them close to 40 years before, when he started working with them, he never took a day off and they could bank their days. He had a year and a half days banked. He could retire literally a year and a half before he retired and continue getting his paycheck. And he told me so many times of all his dreams and plans of what he's going to do. It was all set up. And Ray sat across from that day and he said, Brother Dale, he said, I don't know what's going on, but I'm having trouble remembering names. I just can't remember the names of people or of things. He said, just, I just forget them. Three days later, he was a vegetable and never spoke again. He was two months away from retirement. You can't control the future. It ruins today if you try to. Doesn't the scripture say, Give us this day our daily bread? In the Old Testament, remember they had that manna? If they tried to save it up any day other than Friday, they could save up for the Sabbath. Any day other than Friday, if they tried to save it up, it would spoil. It only lasted a day. God was just letting them know. It all comes from me anyway. He's saying God doesn't give you enough power to worry about tomorrow's problems. So if you're going to worry about tomorrow's problems today, you're going to do it on your own power, not God's power. All right, number three, verse 30. God says, If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Notice that word faith and that big word little beside it. The third step is trust God to care for those things beyond your control. The root of worry is a lack of faith. Look at it. O you of little faith, worry and trust cannot live in the same house. And it will go out the front door, but it will sneak back in the back door if you allow it to. You invite it back in by thinking too much about self and not enough about God. By not trusting Him. Alright, let's close this way. Two practical suggestions. Here's the first one. Don't panic. Pray. In the sign text in Philippians 4 and verse 6, be not anxious for anything, but in prayer and supplication. When you start to panic, and some of you do at times, 
When you start to panic, pray instead. Don't worry about all those problems going on. Pray. Prayer does change, change things. Worry does not. One of my favorite verses in all the Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, where Peter wrote, Cast all your care on Him, for He cares for you. And I always remind myself when I read that verse that it's Peter who wrote it. It's Peter who said that. And if anybody knew how much Jesus, how much God cared for him, it would have been Peter. And Peter said, don't worry, just cast your care on him. Here's what I want to suggest to some of you. When it gets really frustrating, really difficult, I deal with a lot of preachers. I know a lot of preachers who are concerned about their future, who call me and they're all worried about getting fired or they're worried about where they're going to go next or what the problems are they're having with their, with their elders or the leaders or the people or whatever. I get a lot of calls. And here's the advice I've started giving them. Giving them. I tell them, go to your closet. I don't know, I mean that literally. But go somewhere by yourself and say, God, I don't know how to deal with this problem. It is bigger than I am, but it is not bigger than you are. Would you please take care of it for me? And then trust that he will. Instead of panicking, pray. Cast your care on him. It's an interesting word. It literally means to let it go, to turn it loose, to throw it away. Number two, second practical suggestion. Learn. Memorize the promises of God in His Word. In a Bible class, I know you probably already are, but be with people who love God's Word and learn it, memorize it. The psalmist wrote it this way, Your Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. We memorize a lot of things. You say, I don't, I don't have any kind of memory. I can't remember things. Oh, I imagine you know your anniversary. If you don't, don't admit it. You know your birthday, your kid's birthday. You know the PIN code for your debit card. You know the last four numbers, probably the whole thing, your social security number. You know a phone number or two. You know an address. Many of you can name the starting lineup of your favorite football or basketball or baseball teams. You give me statistics on those all day long. You can tell me what time of the week your favorite TV show comes on or when your favorite uh, uh, favorite television show uh Re-airs, you can could, you could name those things. What I've found is that we can remember. We just remember what's most important to us. If stopping worrying is important to you, you've got to have the defenses to overcome worry. Because you're not going to overcome worry by yourself. And Satan's not going to encourage you in this. He's going to discourage you. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's going to do everything he can to keep you doing it. Because he knows as long as you worry, you're not trusting so, if you're going to stop worrying, it's going to take God to be involved in this. So start casting your care on Him and learning His Word. I've got an insurance policy. In fact, when I get one of those phone calls that we all get nowadays, asking if I have health or life or auto insurance, I like to hang up on those people. I try to be polite. But uh, it just doesn't go very far with me because I already have. I like to tell them I've got more insurance in my life already than I want to have. But the truth is, insurance is kind of a good thing. If you've got insurance on your car and you're in a wreck, you just have one question. The only question you have is, is it covered? 
Is it covered? You see, people who don't worry or people who worry, they just don't know what's covered. They haven't read the policy. They don't know the word. He's covered your life. He's covered your needs. So tonight, you need to put them first in your life. Remember what we said. This is your time. He's on your side. He's ready for you. Will you come as we stand and sing?